three, two, one. Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Since Valentine's Day was this week, I decided to pick a case that is relevant to this Hallmark capitalistic celebration because we're so festive here at Hell No True Crime. But first, I want to mention something that I'm sure has the true crime community's ears perked, percolated, perked, perked. When Bob Saget died a few weeks ago, I mentioned it in episode two, but I thought it was from heart failure. This week I saw in a news article that Bob Saget's autopsy showed blunt force trauma to his head, and that was his cause of death, indicating he either hit his head on something pretty hard before getting into bed, or maybe, just maybe, someone hit him with something. I read it's possible he may have had a fall, but apparently the fall would have had to have been from quite a height or something like falling backwards down a flight of stairs. The injury is comparable to being hit in the back of the head with a baseball bat. Also noted was his blood alcohol level because it was zero. He did have some anti-anxiety medications in his system, but hey, who doesn't? His hotel room was ground floor, so no stairs on the ground floor, unless I guess there's stairs going up into the lobby, which in which case somebody would have seen him fall. Apparently, his hotel room didn't show any signs of fight or a struggle. Um, no signs that that had occurred in that room. As of right now, the case has been closed, but people seem to have more questions about this. So I'm going to keep an eye on this and I will keep you posted if the case gets reopened because I would like to know more on this myself. Seems suspicious. But for now, let's get into this week's case, which I have titled My Missing Valentine. Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2007, 38-year-old Stephen Grant shows up at the Maycomb County Sheriff's Office in Michigan, USA with scratches on his face and reading notes out of a notebook he had written like a script. He was there to report his 34-year-old wife, Tara Grant, missing. When Deputy Hughes asked how long it had been since he had last seen her, he told him five days. Stephen told police they had a fight the night of February 9th and she walked out in anger. When asked what the fight was about, he told them Tara worked a lot and that's what they were fighting about. Stephen had claimed that Tara had gotten into the back of a sedan out front of their home. He didn't think this was strange because she was always flying to Puerto Rico for her job, so he just assumed it was an airport shuttle. When asked why he waited so long to report his wife missing, he told Deputy Hughes that he talked to Tara's employer and they told him to wait before filing a missing persons report. This obviously made no sense to police. Stephen claimed he had been calling Tara's phone with no luck of her answering over the entire weekend. He said he had then called her sister, her mother, and her boss. He then drops a wild, outrageous theory and tells Deputy Hughes that Washington Group, the company that Tara works for, has chemical weapons they have demilitarized and Tara had been kidnapped by terrorists and exposed to nerve gas. Even if that did happen, how would he know that and why did he bury the lead? Like, 
way to bury the lead, Stephen. Why wouldn't he have started off with his claim? Why wouldn't he have ran into the office and and been like, my wife's been kidnapped by terrorists? The police don't seem to indulge him in this claim and instead move the conversation to talk about his live-in 19-year-old au pair. An au pair is like a live-in nanny, usually from another country, sometimes in university, um, and they stay in the house and will cook and sometimes do cleaning and watch your kids in exchange for food and rent and sometimes a small salary. They sign up and are placed through an agency. So Stephen and Tara had an au pair. And when police asked if Stephen and the 19-year-old German au pair Verena were involved in any kind of affair, he just smiled and said, she'll never tell. What? Does he not realize he's talking to police regarding the disappearance of his wife? I'm sure you guessed that police are very suspicious that Stephen had something to do with his wife's disappearance. So who the hell is this guy, you might be asking? Stephen Grant, born in Michigan from Detroit, known liar and embellisher. When Stephen was in high school, he was at a restaurant and met a girl there who went to a different school. And Stephen liked her and told her, told this girl that he was a very popular basketball player in his high school and he would like to ask her to the school dance. She went home and was telling her father about Stephen. And well, it just so happens her father worked at Stephen's high school as a counselor and informed his daughter that Stephen wasn't even on the basketball team. Never mind some kind of star player. The girl then refused to go out with Stephen because he's a liar. And liars lie all the time. And she probably knew his lies wouldn't stop there. Tara Grant, on the other hand, was everything Stephen wasn't. She actually did play basketball in high school and was on the track team and played in band and was a cheerleader. She got really good grades and it seemed the only thing she wasn't a part of in high school was keg parties as she didn't like to party or drink. Tara grew up on her family's farm and had a younger sister named Alicia. After graduating high school in 1992, her parents persuaded her to go to college close to home. So she attended the community college in her area where she obtained an associate's degree in business. After that, she was ready to spread her wings and taste that independent life. So she moved away to East Lansing to attend Michigan State University to gain a degree in business. She was going for it. It was here in East Lansing that Tara met college dropout Stephen Grant at a social gathering. Stephen told Tara that he worked in politics as an aide for a state senate, which remarkably wasn't a lie. It turned out that the two actually lived in the same living complex, and Stephen latched on to Tara pretty hard. He kept asking her out and she kept saying no. To me, this already seems clingy and controlling because he didn't listen to her when she said no the first time. He remained close to Tara and convinced her they were friends. Later that year, Tara flew home to Escanaba, Michigan, as her grandmother had passed away and she needed to be with her grieving family. Escanaba is 376 miles from Lansing, making it a six-hour drive to which, unbeknownst to Tara, Stephen did and just randomly showed up at Tara's parents' home, saying it was a surprise and he wanted to support Tara during this difficult time. What the hell was he thinking? This family is planning a funeral and grieving and he just shows up and says surprise? He wasn't even her boyfriend. To me, this feels like he was stalking her and making sure she was actually going to her grandmother's funeral 
and not somewhere else like maybe he thought she was lying the same day he arrived he drove back so he drove 12 hours just to say surprise to the grieving family he had never met i'm sure to her this gesture seemed like it came from somebody who really cared because the next day tara called him up and told him she loved him and that's when they started dating surprise 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 steven then moves into tara's apartment in 1994, Stephen was no longer working in politics as he couldn't get a job, so he went to work for his father's tool and dye shop. Tara, now armed with a degree in business, started out at a temp agency, and she moved up through the ranks, worked hard, and eventually gained long-term employment with Washington Group International. September 1996, Stephen and Tara married in Michigan and bought a house north of Detroit in Shelby Township. Friends say that Stephen had a pretty intense control problem where he needed to control everything, such as activities. Tara's sister, Alicia's husband, said that they even had to stop planning family events because Stephen would always ruin them with his terrible, rude attitude. AKA, he was a dick to everyone. This is a huge red flag because now he is isolating Tara from her family, which is what abusers do in relationships, but unfortunately, this wasn't as well known as it is today through awareness programs to help people spot domestic abuse. The abuser will slowly but surely isolate their victim from friends and family, making them feel like the only person they can turn to is the one abusing them. November 2000, Tara and Stephen had a baby girl named Lindsay, and when Tara was able to, she returned back to work full-time, making Stephen the stay-at-home dad to care for Lindsay. 2002, Tara gets pregnant again. According to Stephen, so who knows if this is actually true, he claims Tara was given a flu shot instead of a birth control shot at the doctor's office, so this pregnancy wasn't planned. It is it possible that this is true? Can this actually happen? Like, let me know if anyone out there listening knows if this has happened before or if it's even possible. Could Stephen had made the doctor's appointment for the flu shot, but told Tara it was birth control and somehow the communication was so terrible at the doctor's that it just slipped past everybody? Either way, by November of that year, Tara gave birth to their son, Ian, and again, Tara went back to work, leaving Stephen to care for a baby and a toddler, and this was proven too much for him, as Tara would be gone all week to Puerto Rico for work and home on weekends. This is when Tara had the idea to hire an au pair. She liked the idea of her children learning another language and being exposed to different cultures. Tara was doing well in her career, and when she started making a six-figure income, she moved her family to Washington Township, which is a very nice area to live. While Tara was working hard, Stephen was hanging out at Buffalo Wild Wings restaurant, harassing the waitresses with stories, most of them lies. He told people there that he cheats on his wife and didn't feel bad about it. He claimed his young au pairs were wild for him, and they would undress in front of him. He told the waitresses that he was a spy and worked in covert ops. He was a never-ending source of bullshit and annoyance. Stephen boasted about his affairs but was enraged at the thought of Tara having one, which he had no evidence for, but being paranoid, controlling, and jealous, he hacked into Tara's email to see who she was talking to. It was then he discovered innocent emails between Tara and an ex-boyfriend who she was friends with. There was nothing in the emails to suggest anything unsavory was happening between the two of them, so Stephen starts sending Tara's ex-boyfriend emails pretending to be her, trying to get the guy to admit things that didn't happen. 
He told a waitress at Buffalo Wild Wings that he told Tara's ex it was actually him emailing him and that if he didn't stop talking to Tara, he would hurt him. Over the next years, Tara and Steven seemed to be having a tough time keeping au pairs as they would quit and leave because Steven was so incredibly hard to live with and work for. But Steven says he didn't like them and he, quote, sent them back, unquote, like they were steak at Buffalo Wild Wings or something. It was then in 2007, Verena arrived to au pair for the couple. The night of February 9th, when Stephen told police was the last time he saw his wife, Verena returns home from a night out with friends around 11.30 and is met by Stephen telling her that Tara had just left because they had a fight. Five days passed before Stephen went to police on February 14th and gave that wild missing persons report. February 15th, the day after Tara is reported missing, Two detectives are assigned to the case. Lead detective on the case is Detective Brian McClowski, and working the case with him is Detective Pam McLean. First thing they do is call Tara's employer. Tara's employer said that she was expected back on the 12th, but hadn't showed up. Tara's employer could also see that there had been no activity on her work account, such as emails. And the detectives then call Tara's sister, Alicia, who tells them Stephen called her and left a message on her voicemail saying it's no big deal but to call her back. When she called him back, he told her that Tara was missing. Uh, I'd say that's a pretty big deal. In that conversation, he also told Alicia that he wouldn't be surprised if Tara was in a motel room with some guy. That's what he says to Tara's sister, as if he can manipulate her into thinking Tara has run off and left her children behind. Alicia knows Tara would never leave her kids. She was such a good mom and loved them so much. Next, detectives go to Stephen and Tara's home to question Stephen and Verena. Stephen was nervous during the detective visits and was visibly shaking when he went on the family computer to show the detectives there had been no activity from Tara on the bank accounts. They go into the garage to have a look at Tara's vehicle, which they see her work notebooks are in the back seat which they find odd because Tara would have took those if she planned to return to work in Puerto Rico. The detective then asks Stephen about the scratches on his face, and he tells them he got them from work. They then ask Stephen about his marriage. Stephen told them that he was faithful, but Tara wasn't. During Verena's questioning, she keeps her answers short and claims she has to leave to go meet friends. She only told them that she was out that night with friends and when she got home, Stephen had told her that Tara had a fight with him and, and that she had left. When she got home, Stephen had told her Tara and him had gotten to a fight and Tara had left. As detectives were leaving, they asked Stephen if he could come to the station and answer more questions soon, to which Stephen replied, you don't think I had anything to do with this, do you? And then cried and cried and cried. When the detectives left, they were probably both thinking, yup, he did it. The next day, Stephen lawyers up and the offices of David Green send police a fax, basically saying any and all questions for Stephen must be submitted to him in writing and faxed to the law office to which Stephen will reply to in writing by fax. So nothing to hide there, Stephen. Hmm? Nothing to hide? You just have to answer all police questions in writing via fax? February 20th, detectives gain access to Stephen's emails, and in those emails, they find he was talking to an ex-girlfriend, telling her that he thinks Tara is having an affair with her boss. He also tells his ex-girlfriend in these emails that he wants to see her naked. February 22nd, Tara's disappearance is now labeled as foul play, 
and police are now considering it's a body they are searching for. The detectives become interested in the Stony Creek Metro Park, a 4,400-acre nature preserve that Stephen keeps bringing up, which is located near their home. I'm not sure in which context he kept bringing it up, but apparently it was enough to draw suspicion to it. Police search the area but find nothing. While police were out searching for Stephen's missing wife, he was busy playing victim, jumping in front of every news camera he could find. He couldn't shout it loud enough that police were treating him unfairly and abusing him. He tells media that he hired a former FBI agent who is now a private investigator to find Tara. He also claims that the police won't tell his private eye anything to which the police respond that no private investigator has contacted them for any information regarding this case. He publicly criticizes his wife, saying that she is a bad mother for working. For working. Um, excuse you, sir? I'm sure this started a fire inside of every working woman's stomach hearing him say that. February 28th, a woman is hiking in the Stony Creek Metro Park doing the environment right and picking up garbage as she goes. She comes across a Ziploc bag and in the bag it looked like blood. She then found another bag which contained rubber gloves and metal shavings. She brought the bags home and called police. The police went and picked up the bags and also asked if the woman could show them where she had found the bags and of course she did. The police send in the bags for testing and find more than just blood. They also found animal hairs. The hairs were a visible match to Tara and Stephen's dog. The blood tested positive for human blood, and with that, they now had enough evidence to get a warrant to search Tara and Stephen's home and Stephen's work at his father's tool and dye shop. March 2nd, police arrive at Stephen's home to search it. Just then, he pulls into the driveway, completely shocked they are there. Not only are there police, but there's also a news crew. One reporter there that day told police that Stephen calls them sometimes five times a day to set up interviews. Even before the search began, Stephen said he had to go walk his dog, and the police couldn't legally hold him, so they had to let him go. He walks over to his friend's home and asks his friend if he can borrow his yellow pickup truck. And his friend is like, yeah, okay, whatever. While police are searching the home, detectives are in the garage looking around. And a green container catches their eye that's labeled boys' clothes. They decide they should have a look inside. And when they open it, they see a black garbage bag. And when they touch the bag, they realize it felt weird. So they cut it open. Inside the bag, they find the torso of Tara Grant arms legs and head removed remnants of the forest stuck to her implying she was moved from the wooded area to that garage they know now they need to find and arrest stephen grant but he is nowhere to be found the next day police organize another search of the stony creek metro park looking for the rest of tara's body and before long they find her head they were finding tara's dismembered body parts all over the woods since it was winter time the cold weather had slowed down decomposition of the remains. So the big question is, where is Stephen? Well, he took that yellow pickup truck north to his sister's house where he snuck in and stole her bottle of Vicodin, but he left his dog. He was also looking for a gun, but never found one. He then started driving to Lansing, and on his way, he decided he needed to buy a bottle of whiskey and a toy gun, which he altered to look like a real gun. And he purchased these items using his bank card, which police could then trace where he was. 
Police were also using his cell phone to track him as he kept using it to call his sister. Once he got to Wilderness State Park, he called his sister again, this time telling her where he was and to alert the authorities the next day. But she didn't call the authorities the next day. She called the police immediately. And the police from that local area, they show up to the park with emergency services and also had a Coast Guard helicopter flying overhead. Stephen must have been vibing with Hansel and Gretel style because he left a breadcrumb trail of his belongings leading to where he was. It started with the big yellow truck he was driving. He left that blocking traffic on the road. The police followed a pathway that was littered with his stuff. He left his watch, the bottle of whiskey, the toy gun. That toy gun apparently he was going to try to use to threaten police with and then die by police shooting. This trail led police straight to Stephen laying under a tree trying to freeze himself to death. It was actually working because he had frostbite on his feet and was taken to hospital where his body temperature was so low if he would have stayed out there any longer he probably would have died very soon. Stephen admitted to taking four Vicodin pills he stole from his sister and 16 Benadryl pills. He said it felt like he was hallucinating when he got to the park and and just started walking around trying to make it to one of the many scattered shelters in the area. Um, and that's when he just fell down under a tree, the tree that they found him under. Finally, they have arrested Stephen Grant, and when he realizes he's been arrested, he asks to speak to his lawyer, to which he is then informed he no longer has legal representation as he was dropped as a client by David Green's law offices. He asks detectives if he is being charged with first-degree murder or manslaughter. To that, they tell him that's for the district attorney to say. Stephen is ready to confess. His confession is different from his last stories. And I actually found a copy of the written confession online, which I've actually never found before. So that was interesting. The handwriting was so terrible, I could barely make it out. But he says February 9th, Tara arrived home late due to a layover being delayed. The children were sleeping just down the hall in their bedrooms when Tara and him were getting ready for bed they started to argue about her working so much and being away so often traveling for work as she had just told him that she was heading back to work Sunday. Stephen then accused her of spending more time than he liked with her boss to which Stephen said she responded fuck off too bad I gotta do what I gotta do for my job and it's none of your business. Stephen says Tara then tried to leave and he grabbed her by the wrist Oh, Stephen, never grab a woman when she's walking away from you. It's never okay. As Stephen grabbed her by the wrist, he tells her that she's not going anywhere and they needed to finish their conversation. Then Tara slapped him and then he hit her, sending her falling backwards and hitting her head on the ground. Tara then tells Stephen that she is leaving him and taking the kids with her. Also, he claims that she told him that she would ruin his life and he's going to be homeless and that he's a piece of shit. Stephen, now enraged, began to choke Tara. And when she started to struggle, he kept choking her until she stopped breathing. In a few episodes, I talked about how choking a victim can take a long time. I think I said anywhere from 7 to 14 minutes. But I was off by a lot and I think I was actually thinking about suffocating a victim. According to Google, it takes between two to three minutes to kill someone by choking. 
Once she stopped breathing, Stephen covered her face with clothing, probably because he felt guilty and couldn't look her in the face as an attempt to dehumanize her like we saw in the Tyler Hadley case. He then left the room and sent Verena a text message telling her that Tara was going to be getting home late that night and she could stay out as long as she wanted. I'm not sure why he was telling her how long she can stay out. That seems like a whole other control thing he's doing with her. He then returns to the scene of the crime and wraps a belt around Tara's neck and said he did that so he could easily drag her body down the stairs where he then loaded her body in the back of her own car. Just as he finished loading and covering the body, he heard Verena start to open the garage door. So he then ran into the house before she saw him. When Verena enters the home, Stephen yells from upstairs, Go away! Just go! Verena probably said something like, what? Then he went and talked to her, telling her he thought she was Tara returning home after she had just walked out after the fight that they had just gotten into. And he tells her that the scratches on his face are from the fight that um, him and Tara had just gotten into. He also told her that Tara was heading back to Puerto Rico to work, which would later explain why she wasn't there in the following days to see her children. Tara's body remained in the trunk of her car for the entire next day. The following day, which was a Sunday, Stephen knew his father wouldn't be at the tool and dye shop. So he drove Tara's body over to the shop and laid her out on a plastic sheet with the plan to dismember her body. The first tool he tried to use was a handsaw. And after attempting to remove her hand, he gave up and realized it was going to be a lot of hard work classic Stephen. So he takes a break from the body and moves on to shredding her work documents from her briefcase and also chops up and smashes her laptop to which of course made a huge mess. And during the cleanup of that big mess, he got some glass stuck in his finger. It cut his finger and unknowingly he's now mixed his DNA with the evidence. Smart Stephen, real smart. He put the remnants of the laptop in a box and he placed the laptop bag, her purse, and her briefcase into a paper bag, which he later disposed of into a dumpster near his childhood home. He then turns his attention back to dismembering his wife's body. He couldn't seem to do it with the handsaw for whatever reason, so this time he wraps a cloth around a hacksaw blade and goes at all of her joints, with that separating her head, hands, feet, arms, and legs from her body. I actually watched an interview once with... I can't remember which murderer it was it could have been a serial killer and he was saying that that's the easiest way to dismember bodies and then he went into great detail about going for the joints separating it at the joints and then um, breaking the bone and um, tearing through all the ligaments and apparently he said it just pops right out which was quite disturbing so this is what Stephen did he went for all of the joints cutting everything so like wrist elbow shoulder knee ankles those 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 parts of the bodies he wrapped the body parts in plastic and stored them in a plastic tub along with all the evidence everything fit neatly into one of those giant tubs that um, he then took that tub and loaded it into his vehicle and brought it back to his house 3 a.m monday morning so the next day he goes to stony creek metro park and starts scoping places to dump the remains 
he decides on an area that he would like to scatter the remains at. From the back of the vehicle, he pulls out a child's sled, or for my Canadian listeners, a toboggan, and places the plastic tub filled with the remains onto the sled and starts pulling it through the snow in the park like some kind of demented sleigh ride or something. As he is walking, he is also tossing out the body parts, hiding them in the hiding them in the snow-covered ground. The land starts to steepen, and like something out of a dark comedy, the sled gets away from him and starts barreling down a snow-covered hill with the remains. Stephen, now chasing after it, finally catches up to finally catches up to the sled, and the container falls over and breaks, liberating all the contents from inside. I'd imagine at this point Tara is laughing at him from the other side of mortal life and he is getting more and more frustrated. He buries the torso in the snow, piles the rest of piles the rest of the remains back onto the sled and just left it all in the park. He left a sled piled with human remains just sitting in the park and drove home. After going home, gathering his thoughts and calming down, he heads back out to the park to finish the job. He scatters the rest of the remains and evidence, including the gloves, his shoes, and saw blades that were used in the dismembering. He then yet again abandons the sled in the park and goes home. He then returned to the park again on Tuesday. No wonder he talked about this park so much to make police suspicious. He was there three times in like two days. Not only did he go there three times in two days, but this time he went back to dig up Tara's remains to move them further into the 4,400 acre wooded area. After he did this, he went and paid off all of his parking tickets as his license was actually suspended due to the overdue fines. His reasoning for doing this was because he wanted to report Tara missing and he didn't want the tickets showing up when police looked into him because he thought it would make him look suspicious. Okay, parking tickets do not make a person look suspicious of murdering their wife. You know what does? Murdering your wife makes you look suspicious of murdering your wife. This brings us up to Valentine's Day when he reported Tara missing saying he thinks she was kidnapped by terrorists and exposed to nerve gas because the company she worked for demilitarized chemical weapons. The reason police didn't find remains when they searched the park a week after her missing report was filed was because Stephen heard the announcement they were planning on searching the park. So what do you think he did? That's right. He went back, back to the park again, making this the fourth time he went to the scene of the dumping ground. But that time his mother had been visiting, probably because his wife was missing and he needed help with the kids. Two days after Tara was reported missing, Verena's au pair agency removed her from the home on the 16th because of the ongoing investigation. Because of this, Stephen didn't want his mother to know he was leaving the house, so he snuck out early morning and went to the park on foot, where he collected Tara's torso and hid it behind a tree in a place he could easily pick it up later in a vehicle. Why weren't police tailing this guy? Imagine showing photos in court of Stephen carrying around black garbage bags in the park, burying them and digging them up multiple times, pulling them around on a sled and chasing them down a hill. Later that same day, he tells his mother he was going out to get some coffee and he would be back shortly, but he actually went to the park to pick up Tara's torso in his vehicle. That same day, police search the park and find nothing. 
Stephen had brought the torso to his father's shop and hid it in another container that he placed on a subroof in the shop. I'm assuming there was no smell as it was frozen, but after leaving it there for a week, I'd imagine it would start to thaw and he moved it in fear of an odor eventually being noticed. March 1st, he moves the container from his father's shop back to the garage in his home. So the body, the torso was in his father's shop for a week. So March 1st, he moves the container from his father's shop back to his garage, back to the scene of the crime, back to where police were currently obtaining a search warrant to search. March 2nd, police arrived to search his home, and this is when the detectives found it. He really thought police weren't going to eventually search his entire house for evidence? In an ironic twist to this case, Stephen tells police he called his sister after he fled to tell her where he was going to kill himself so police could find him because he didn't want to rot in the woods. The irony of this was, of course, lost on Stephen. When police asked Stephen about his relationship with Verena, he told them that they were falling in love and days before he killed his wife, he and Verena had kissed. And the night before Tara was murdered, Stephen and Verena slept together in Stephen and Tara's bed, but claims they didn't have full intercourse, but he did perform sexual acts on her. Verena testified in court and said that Stephen was bluntly saying things to her like, I want to have sex with you, let's shower together, and I'm falling in love with you. I wonder if he was sexually harassing the other au pairs as well, and that's why nobody lasted long in that home with Stephen. If that was the case, then he should have been blacklisted and investigated by the au pair agency, but maybe the women never spoke up about what was happening to them. Verena also said while testifying that Stephen would send her emails telling her that he wanted to touch her breasts. He had also sent her text messages the night of February 9th saying that she owes him a kiss and when she gets home, she better let him know so he can get a kiss from her. Ugh, barf, 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 barf. After the murder, Verena said she had even slept in bed with Stephen thinking Tara had, you know, really ran off on him, but she said nothing sexual happened. Stephen continued to tell her that he loved her and was falling in love with her and practically begging her to say it back by asking her, like, also, like, are you falling in love with me? Do you love me? To which she responded, yeah, maybe. Not the words of a passionate love affair. I wonder if Verena thought this was the only way she could keep her job. She never says that in anything I read, but I just thought, you know, maybe that's why she was sleeping with this guy. A woman named Dina also testified in court. Dina is Stephen's ex-girlfriend, who one month before the murder was receiving flirtatious emails from Stephen, which soon turned sexual. They had been talking on the phone with each other upwards of 10 times a day, and they had plans to meet for dinner in late January. But Stephen had canceled, perhaps because Verena was in the picture now. Stephen was charged with first-degree murder and pleaded not guilty, but he did plead guilty to mutilating a corpse. In a courtroom surprise, the prosecutor brought forward claims that the children had seen Stephen murder their mother that night, and because of this, requested a harsher sentence. Stephen was found guilty and convicted of second-degree murder as there was not enough proof of premeditation. But because the children had witnessed the murder, the judge sentenced Stephen to 50 to 80 years, eligible for parole in 2058 when he is 88 years old. The district attorney said 
he will be 91 years old in 2058. And if he is still on this earth, he will make sure to be there to object to Stephen's parole. Tara's family received $50 million as an outcome of a wrongful death suit against Stephen, but no amount of money will ever bring their beloved daughter back. After a bumpy ride, Tara's children went into the custody of her sister, Alicia. I found an article published 10 years after the murder that Ian and Lindsay, Tara's children, were doing well in school and are now both in their teenage years and doing very well for themselves. Every year, Ian and Lindsay participate along with 500 or more people in a 5K walk called Tara's Walk. The proceeds go directly into the Terra Liberation Fund, which is used as an emergency fund to be given to people who need to quickly escape domestic violence. Terra's Walk also serves as an event to raise awareness about domestic abuse and violence. In the article by Detroit News, they quoted a bit from Tara's sister Alicia's speech. Alicia said this, quote, I assume she could handle herself, and that was the worst mistake of my life, unquote. Stephen not only took Tara's life that day, but he ruined so many other lives that surrounded and loved Tara. He also hurt his own family deeply, and on June 13th, 2008, Stephen's father couldn't bear the weight of what his son had did and took his own life in his garage using a rifle. Domestic abuse comes in many forms, and it is important to know the signs early. If you notice your friend or family member becomes distant when in a relationship, this could be a sign of the abuser isolating them purposefully, taking away their community and support so they can be controlled. More signs from the outside looking in are the victim will be making excuses for injuries, bruises, cuts. They'll develop low self-esteem and they will fear their partner. If you find yourself in a relationship and your partner is accusing you of having an affair, constantly criticizing you and cutting you down, telling you what you can and cannot wear and do, forces you to have sex or makes you feel like you owe them sex, keeps close tabs on your every move and who you're with, won't allow you to see friends or family because they don't like them, stalks you, takes your money, monitors your money, threatens to kill you or themselves if you don't do what they want or if you try to leave them, then you are in an abusive relationship and there is help. Unfortunately, it's more common than people think and it can be very difficult as you may think you actually love them and will be able to get that nice person back that you first met. And you may for a moment, but the abuse will never stop. Actually, the opposite. It will get worse and worse. Now you know what to look for, and I hope this message helps someone before it's too late like we saw in today's case. Be safe, true crime listeners. Well, be safe, everyone, for that matter. That concludes this week's My Missing Valentine episode. I hope you all had a wonderful Valentine's Day, whatever that may look like to you. If you're listening on Spotify, please give me a five-star rating and don't forget to check the Hell No True Crime Podcast Instagram and Facebook page for photos relating to this case. You know I'm going to give Stephen Grant a huge hell no. So to Stephen Grant, I say hell no. Thanks for listening and see you next week.